right? You want to be like the cockroach of fitness. Like you just don't, you want to be really hard to kill and like pop tarts should not be the thing that takes you down. Right. And just be, be more robust and your rest of your life will be better. Is bodybuilding about selfies, steroids, magazines, and muscles? How do I become a successful pro bodybuilder or fitness competitor? Where do I even start if I'm new? And the biggest question of all, what are the judges looking for anyway? Even today with the internet, many people first discover bodybuilding by word of mouth. A lack of regulation has caused a boom of unqualified coaches, scattered info, biased advice, dangerous protocols, and posing trends that are a hot mess. After 20 years in the business, I have seen it all. Week after week, I'm gonna talk about taboo topics that get swept under the rug, provide you tips and strategies to gain a competitive edge and stand out on stage in any division or federation. I'm gonna answer all the burning industry questions without the bias. I have competed across six federations, earned pro status in three, and judged in two. I've coached posing and choreography for men and women in all federations and divisions. I know just how much competing means to you. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome, and you are listening to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. Be sure to download your free guide, Five Things Every Bodybuilder and Fitness Competitor Needs to Know Before Your Next Show at eeinbb.com. That's www.eeinbb.com. Welcome back to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome, and with me today is my co-host, Vasilios Metropolis. Oh my God, she brought me back on. I'm not sure what she's doing. Super excited because, well, we are both (laughs) excited to bring this guest on, um, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. He has a PhD in exercise physiology. He has a bachelor's in natural science a master's in biomechanics, if that wasn't enough. He has also been called in to share his techniques with top government agencies and athletes at the top of their game. Dr. Mike T. Nelson is the founder of the Flex Diet Certification and the Flex Diet Podcast. And I got to say, he's probably one of the smartest people Vasilios and I have ever met. And one of the coolest and oh. funniest, and nice. funniest. And you I guys have don't to know say, a lot of people. It's okay. <laughs> you guys listening out there, if you haven't subscribed to Dr. Mike's newsletter, I'm telling you, you're going to be roaring at like the middle of the night or in the morning, and somebody in the other room is going to be wondering what's going on. And I'm telling you, it's Dr. Mike's email. So you got to subscribe to his <laughs> newsletter because I'm telling you. So we couldn't think of anybody more fitting to talk about physiology and five stupid things that competitors do that just don't make sense. They still do it. So Mike, Dr. Mike, that is, can you please share a little more on your background? How did you get into educating fitness, the fitness industry? And what do you think is the biggest thing holding people back from reaching their fitness goals? Oh, I mean, how I started was probably like most guys. I was a six foot three eel shaped rake person at 155 pounds after all my growth spurts, like probably most of the way through my freshman year of college. So, you know, went to the gym to start lifting weights because I'm like, oh, I should probably improve this. I remember enrolling in the mentor got at St. Scholastica. And I was so excited for the first semester we had to take PE credits. So I took uh, weightlifting. I was all excited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn how to lift. This is going to be great. And so the, the guy comes in, does his intro, and he's like, hey, this will be a weightlifting class. Some of you, I'm sure, are here to lose weight. And then some of you, and he looks at me and stops and goes, holy crap, 
some of you need to gain weight. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. So I didn't feel bad enough already. And then he literally disappeared. We never saw him again. Like the assistant just took attendance and I didn't learn crap. So um, I thought at that point, I'm like, well, maybe I should try to self-educate myself. So I started taking anatomy and physiology classes literally just for fun, which was great. Um, at St. Scholastica, they had one of the few undergrad programs that would literally allow anyone to sign up for anatomy and physiology, and they actually used uh, human cadavers. So they got new cadavers every quarter, which for an undergrad program, especially back in the 90s, was really rare. So I got the opportunity to uh, do anatomy and physiology on human cadavers, which was fascinating. And then I wasn't really sure what I would do with any of that, though. So I just started doing it for fun. Uh, I liked more the engineering side because they used to tear stuff apart and never put it back together. So my parents are like, oh, you should look at engineering. I'm like, oh, okay. Looked more at uh, biomedical engineering. I went to Michigan Tech for three main reasons. They had a large mechanical engineering department, but it was a smaller school. They had a ski hill where you could go snowboarding. And they had a nice gym and they had a radio station I could work at. So it was like, oh, this is perfect. This will be the perfect place. So I did two years postgrad there and then did another two and a half years to do my, my master's. Graduated, said I was never going back to school again after almost eight years. And then started working for a biomed company in uh, cardiac. They did implantable pacemakers, defibrillators. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, I can just go to like cool, you know, fitness seminars for fun. So I showed up to random seminars and harassed all the trainers and couldn't figure out why none of them read research because I just assumed that they all read research. Turns out, I guess they don't most of the time. And then eventually I just started working as a trainer at a local gym. I did that for a while, went back to school for a PhD in biomedical engineering. I never finished that, just did five years in that program and then switched to exercise physiology. So I kept training people, just learning more about it. And then probably officially, it was in 2005, I did my NSCA certification for CSCS. So I guess at that point, I officially considered myself a trainer and people actually, I started charging people for it and was, was still working at the gym. And then, yeah, just kind of fast forward for today where I work as a associate professor at the Kerrig Institute, do some teaching for Rocky Mountain University. I'll be teaching for Walsh University this fall also. And then, yeah, primarily transitioned to online as of about eight years ago. So lots of education, you, highly educated, and you just yeah. keep going back to school. And then now you're done Not with anymore. school. Not anymore. I'm done. I finished at 38. Sending everybody else back to school. Yeah, but you're sending, everybody, <laughs> you're sending everybody else back to school. And actually, your certifications, they do count towards CEUs. That was something that was new yes. this year, right? Yeah, that's Yeah, huge. so we did. We did get CEU approval for the Flex Diet Cert, which is great. So we have CEUs through ACE, NASM, AFAA, and the NSCA. And because people are like, well, you've had it for a couple of years. Why didn't you get CEUs right away? <laughs> I decided that I knew I eventually was going to get CEUs, so I set it up to get CEUs. But I only wanted feedback from people who were serious about it. So I purposely never applied for CEUs for the first year and a half. Because I wanted people who were serious about it and who had to pay money and wanted to learn the material, not just to get a CEU. And once I was satisfied that the feedback from there was actually better than I thought it was going to be, uh, then I went and applied for CEUs. So now you can you can do both. You can learn and obviously you want to get credit for that through different organizations. 
And then, Mike, um, answering the one more question about what you what do you believe in your experience all of these years in your education and then working with people and working with people online and now educating people because you educate coaches, what do you think is the number one thing holding people back from reaching those fitness goals? I'll By probably the way, cheat and say two things that are <laughs> similar. One of them is just consistency. Right. I mean, just just show up every day. Like if you do something, you show up every day, you're going to make some progress. Right. And then you can't get around that. I often joke that if you're Oprah Winfrey and you have a ton of money, you could hire a trainer to show up at your door every day at a certain time. You could have your own private gym. You could have your own private chef. You could have everything done for you, but no one's ever going to lift the weights for you. No one's ever going to like, you know, feed you. You know, you're going to have to do all those things yourself. Um, So just the consistency of it. And then right behind that would be probably a proper mindset. If you don't think you're going to make it, you probably won't. Like, well, I think your body will follow whatever direction your mind is going. And I think that's kind of not talked about enough. Um, but it is something that you see in, you know, pretty much everyone who's uh, successful. That's that's very interesting, Mike. You know, obviously, we've worked with you personally and you've you've had yeah. uh, quite a bit of influence i know on me i think as well on michelle we've definitely changed our training approaches since we've worked with you we've we've both been certified in uh, multiple one of your courses it's interesting that you bring up mindset I, I am curious how many people that you've worked with and or know that are actively involved in bodybuilding or uh, weightlifting powerlifting any of that kind of arena do you do you believe or have seen how many of those people actually go into it going I need to do this the rest of my life if I want to be successful, if I want to be healthy. Is that a common thread? Are people actually starting to make that connection? I think it's actually gotten better, but I would not say it's amazing. I get the the kind of the outlier people, like the people who want to be successful but are a little bit older and realize they don't want to compromise their health to do it. Or they were successful and now they've severely compromised their health. And so now they're trying to get that back. Um, One person who remained nameless was on the cover of many uh, female fitness magazines back in the 90s. And wow, what a what a mess, (laughs) you know, and and to her credit, she figured it out and was like trying to reverse that. But it was, you know, many years later. So I kind of get the kind of the extremes of, of both ends. I'm not really sure my demographic is really representative of most people out there. So the people that come to you are really looking, you, know, you work with a lot of coaches, you work with high level athletes, you work with the government. You want to share yeah, anything I did some about stuff that? For DARPA. Yeah, it was pretty wild. So DARPA is a defense advanced resource project agency. They're the group that basically invented the ARPANET, the thing we call the internet, uh, GPS. They're, Fascinating because they're an sort of independent organization, but yet they work for the government. So I went there, I asked them, I said, well, so let me get this straight. You put out a call for private industry to bid on government projects. They're like, yes. I'm like, why would you not just have government agencies do it? And they're like, oh, they're so far behind the times, it would take forever and it's not efficient. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, if you're running a business in the private sector, by definition, you're still in business. So you are probably the most up-to-date you can get. There's some degrees of variance in that. But we know that you're up-to-date enough to run a, a certifiable business because they're asking questions that are 5, 10, 15 years out. 
You know, they're like all the easy questions have been solved already. We're like looking at stuff that is very, very difficult. And I asked one of the other guys there who was a contractor for them who got a, a project. I said, you know, what's like if, if you get a project, like what is the, the biggest thing you should not do? Like what's the fastest way to get fired? So if something happens, I know not to do this. And he's like, um, the fastest way to get fired is not showing them enough failure. I'm like what? He's like, they want to see every failure that you did. I'm like, okay. And they're like, that's a good thing. I'm like, how is that a good thing? They're like, because if you don't show failures, that means you spend way too much time not trying stuff and you'll never figure anything out. It's like, yes, you need to put some thought into it. Yes, you need to have some discussion. But he's like, we're they're trying to solve problems that are very difficult. And by definition, you're going to have multiple failures. As long as you show them what you learned from that failure, he's like, they'll give you as much money and time as you want. Like a lot of the projects are very time-based. Um, so I asked them, I said, well, is money ever an issue? They're like, uh, nope. <laughs> like they'll give you as much money as they want because they're interested in solving a problem. And then normally their time frames are like ridiculously short, right? So you would think like this big project, you're like, oh, it's going to be like a 10 year project. They're like, uh, nope, year and a half <laughs> because they're trying to compress the time to get you to iterate, to, to get, you through different things to get to, you know, what is a better answer. Um, so from that aspect, it's really fascinating. And even as a percentage of the government spending, it's not super high, but it's been you know, extremely productive. A lot of those things that, you know, funding for defense eventually show up in, you know, the public sector too. So I can honestly say like, I've been you know privileged to be in a room with a lot of really, really smart people and sitting in there, like right before I did my presentation, there is no question. I was the dumbest person in that room, like by far. It was <laughs> wild. <laughs> How did they receive your information, your presentation? It did was good. I mean, I, people? yeah, I did a talk on metabolic flexibility. And my argument was, in some sense, the military has already been doing this. If you've got, you know, a small group of, you know, special forces operators, they've learned over years to be pretty trained just to be dropped in any situation and they can figure it out. They may do that on their own training combined with military training. So my argument was that as that scales up and you get larger and larger footprints, yes, you need to have some infrastructure, but you may be able initially to limit that infrastructure if you can train their physiology to be more adaptable to the environment you're going to stick them in. So maybe they should work on fasting for at least 24 to 48 hours. To know that, yeah, 100%, I can do all the tasks I need to do. I've done this in training. It's no big deal. Eh, if I don't have food for one or two days, I'm not really that worried about it. You know, versus trying to make sure everything is, quote, perfect or supported as best that you can, knowing that there's going to be limits in that system. And then as you scale up, obviously, you're going to need more and more infrastructure. But in the meantime, spend more time with smaller footprints training people to be more adaptable into the environment that you're going to put them in. And overall, it was, you know, pretty well accepted. There's a couple of old crotchety gray hair people in the back that were mad at me, but you know, overall went pretty what? well. <laughs> again. What'd you do? What'd you do? Uh, What'd you do I think again? they were, they were used to the, just solve it with more resources. And even the guy who was leading the project was like, we're not resource limited. He's like, if, if resources were the issue, we would have solved it already. Cause we can get whatever resources we want. He's like, that's not the problem. We need better ideas, better thought process in order to get beyond where we're at now because it was too simple it was almost like it's one of those things where on its face value it was almost too simple but yet hadn't been at that time this is 10 years ago systematically done like smaller pockets you know had 
been doing it, but it wasn't really accepted as like a valid methodology of, okay, we're really going to put some time and effort into, okay, we're going to get people up to this level. Okay. And now we're going to see, can you maintain this level with like a whole shitload of adversity? You know, can you do it fasting? Could you do it after running? Could you do it after fatigue? Most of the exercise stuff they're pretty good with, but a lot of it was also the other environmental factors I think could be factored in a little bit more. And that's actually changed quite a bit. Like if you look at how like even SEAL training and stuff has been done, they went to more of a general prepared model and not hyper specificity uh, that they used to have in the past. Because I think the military realized that we don't really, we're not really good at predicting where the next thing is going to be. So we need to be a little bit better at being prepared in almost every situation and have that be part of the curriculum so that if something does happen there or we see it happening, yeah, we're going to probably do more specialized training, but it's going to be very small compared to what we used to do in the past. That's a great way to look at it. Would you say that that's how you would summarize metabolic flexibility? I mean, that's kind of the consensus, right? Yeah. So metabolic flexibility is how well can you use carbohydrates on one end? How well can you use fat on the other end? And then how well can you switch back and forth? So the running sort of joke I have is on your right end, like a high carbohydrate, can you eat two Pop-Tarts and feel good and go do your job or do whatever, not pass out in an insulin-induced stupor under your table, right? Because it, it's not there's anything magical about Pop-Tarts, but they survive almost anything. The frosting is probably some ceramic being tested by NASA, which is funny. At high enough temperature, they actually are extremely flammable. So potentially that might be a use at some point. Um, and then there's 80 grams of glucose, right? Huge amount of carbohydrates. So it's like the most kind of right end extreme you can get in terms of carbohydrates that you have easy access to. On the other end, you'd have maybe, can you do a 24 hour fast? And you know, you're probably going to be hungry, but could you feel pretty good? Could you do most of your tasks that you would need to do? So can you operate within those two would be the extremes end of the spectrum. And then how fast can you switch back and forth? <clears throat> could you go from a 24 hour fast to a day of higher carbohydrates? Could you go from a higher carbohydrate day to a very low or a fasting type day. So it, I've explained it to other people like, uh, it's like cockroach fitness, right? You want to be like the cockroach of fitness. Like you just don't, you want to be really hard to kill and like pop tarts should not be the thing that takes you down. Right. And just be, be more robust and your rest of your life will be better. <laughs> it's, you know, physiology moving on to the topic of physiology with the, um, idea of competitors and incorrect things that they keep doing. And just touching back on what you mentioned about failure and how you were told that if you're not failing at things, then it means that you're not really attempting things, but it's kind of, I'm kind of bridging this idea of failing at things from a competitor standpoint, but not learning from it. Right. So it's failing, but keep doing that thing. And where is the gap? Where is like the disconnect that's happening where competitors are doing these things repetitively? And we're going to talk about five of them today and they're not learning from them. Why do you have any idea? I don't know. That's always mystified me, right? Because you hear this like classic story, like all the time. They worked with said name guru. Um, oh, they missed the peak conditioning of their show. They go out and eat like two hamburgers and fries and they're like, oh, I looked amazing the next morning. And my brain is like, cool. We'll just slide everything up a day. And I'm not saying hamburgers and French fries are like the answer. But if that worked, there was something about what you did that worked. It just, you, you sucked at the timing. So just slide it back a day and then don't change anything else. But I think it's this 
over-reliance on somebody else kind of knows my physiology best. I'm going to trust, you know, him or her. And then, you know, not saying not use coaches, but, and then just probably not even doing any sort of trial run. I mean, yeah, if you've been doing it for many years, you've got lots of data. Um, but if you look at the competitors who were very known to be well-conditioned per se, but were consistent, I don't know of a single one that was not just meticulous about their notes, right? If you talk to like Dorian Yates about his training, he could tell you exactly everything that went on for like six months leading up to a show. And historically, like his conditioning, it varied a little bit, but he was pretty damn good for most of his shows. Like he didn't show up like just, whoa, what happened to that dude, right? He was, you know, pretty good. So I think just taking notes and trusting your own body and your own physiology, obviously working with other people is going to be extremely beneficial. Um, but I think that's going to be the most useful instead of just like, oh, Guru Bob said I need to do this. And that's what I'm going to do. And this didn't work the last four times, but damn it, the fifth time, it, it's going to work this time. It's like, no, it's probably not. <laughs> and how many times people do the same protocol and it doesn't have the same results. There's other moving yeah. targets that aren't taken into account. And that whole idea of that coach, because people are relying on that coach for the expertise. And the reason we're bringing people like you, Dr. Micah, on the podcast is because you actually understand physiology. You understand a lot more than surface level, you know, I'm just going to rotate some carbs and that's going to get you into your show. You actually understand that there's multiple things going on at the same time. Every person's individual and you ask for feedback. That's key is it's a two-way street. You ask for feedback. And I feel like a lot of competitors sign on with a coach and it's just, they shut off. I'm just going to oh, do whatever yeah. the coach says. Yeah, that and freaks I don't me think out. That, it's not going to yeah, go that, well. <laughs> yeah, that feedback is critical. And how are you going to know, especially if there's stress, if there's other things that you know, actually that flex diet certification that you have, those are you learn about. So what is it? Interventions, right? We talk, you talk about mm -hmm. all kinds of interventions that can be done to what? I'll let you just go ahead and deep dive on that real quick. Yeah, the way I set it up is that the analogy I use for people is imagine you're going to go to the bowling alley and you're, if your coach is like, Hey, you've never really done this thing before. You've never compared for a show or you've never done nutrition training, whatever it is. And my job is to coach you and you need to bowl strikes like on day one, like it's going to be pretty hard. Right. But other coach says, well, what if I just put the little bumpers in the lane and you can, you know, vary how you go down the lane, but just for God's sake, stay in this lane and let's just see how many pins we can knock down to start. So I kind of think of it as like bumper bowling where, you know, your job is to keep them in one lane, allow them to vary a little bit, but making sure they're always going to hit some pins. Like they're going to be moving towards their target. And then over time, you can figure out the variations. Or a lot of people start in like lane one and you look and like five weeks later, they're in lane seven doing, you know, keto or whatever it is. And like, how did you get over there? Like you probably just need to stay in one area, you know, learn from some of your failures, you know, what works and then kind of step through. And then in addition, starting with like the big interventions. So, you know, sleep is very popular right now for good reason. If we just look at the physiology, there's tons of reasons people need to sleep more. There's like no question that sleep is like super important. The hard part is on the psychology side is most of the time trying to get most people to get another hour of sleep ends up in this long discussion about the values of their life and, you know, maybe putting a kid up for adoption or whatever, right? They're, you know, you'd have to do some major life changes to them because it comes down to, oh, so you're telling me the two hours I, 
you know, chill out and watch Netflix at night. You're telling me only do that for an hour or just not do it and go to bed. Good luck competing with Netflix, right? You're probably going to lose. Um, so sleep is very important, but it's very hard for people to change. So therefore your leverage, like the, the physiology effect times the psychology, the client's ability to change is very low compared to something like protein. And you tell most people, I mean, competitors are pretty good about this. Hey, eat more protein and you lose weight. They're like, what? Eat more of something and I'm going to lose weight? And you're like, yeah, okay, that I can do that, right? So their ability to change is much higher. Obviously, protein has a lot of physiological reasons for it too. So it's setting up the eight interventions based on you know both physiology and psychology. So then when new coaches come in, they're like, oh, okay, I'm probably going to start on protein more than sleep, right? And so it, it's graded in a way that they're focusing on the big rocks first based on physiology and based on the client's ability to change. So I tell coaches, like, you, you want to rig the system in your client's favor. Like, you want to give them things that's easier for them to do as long as they're effective. Like, that, that's okay. That's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, so, and those things are absolutely doable, and, I, and you structure them. And then there's the concept of, well, holding water. If I'm going to start with the first, quote-unquote, stupid thing, yeah. <laughs> that physique competitors still get incorrect. And but physiology has shown other ways to approach it. So if you could just explain the concept of holding water. So most of the time, I talked to Dave Goodall about this years ago at a show in Texas, and we both kind of agreed that I think it's almost a cop out for a judge. It's easier for a judge to tell a competitor who spent, you know, however long prepping for a show, which is incredibly incredibly difficult it's easier for them to tell them, oh, you're just holding a little too much water, then you're probably not lean enough, right? No one probably wants to ever hear, you're probably not lean enough, right? But I think the downside of that is it spurs all these things of like, oh, well, I was lean enough because, you know, the judge didn't say I was not lean enough. I'm, I'm holding water. So I got to do some crazy diuretic program or carb load different or give up salt or don't drink water for three days or, you know, whatever crazy things they do because it... The reality is it's it's a exceedingly ever higher and higher standard. And I think most of that comes from, you know, judges probably just not being honest with feedback. And so I get it. They're like, oh, man, I'm probably not going to see this person again. I don't want to make them feel bad because, you know, they put in all this time and effort. I don't really want to say they're not lean enough because that sounds bad. Oh, you're just holding a little bit of water. That's what it is. Yeah, that's it. And that gets further confiscated because... Is there differences in water that's, you know, sort of held under the skin and different looks and effects? Yeah, that's a, a real thing. But it goes back to what are the things that you can probably reliably control, even though they're very difficult. You know, most of the time, if someone's very lean, even if you look at pictures of them before peak week or carb learning or whatever, most of the time they look pretty good. I mean, are they going to be you know ready to step on stage? Probably not. But compared to someone who is still 16 weeks out right? I mean, it's a big difference, right? And that's just the difference of just being really lean versus not really lean. What percentage of competitors do you think really underestimate how long it's going to take to get lean? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because it, I mean, I would, you always I would think of the perfect scenario, right? And that, that freaks me out too. If they're like, you know, I, I'm sure I can be ready in 16 weeks. I'm like, Okay, send me some pictures. Like, not pictures from a go. Like, today, get up tomorrow morning, take pictures, 
send them in. I have other people that I know judge for shows. I usually send them to them also. So it's not just me, you know, giving my sort of weirdo opinion about it. And most of the time they're like, okay, even in the best case scenario, if you lost one pound per week, which we know is not going to be sustainable for 16 weeks, especially right before your show. Yeah, I don't know. And then it gets into the question of how extreme do you want to be? What do you want to do? You know, do you have another show? Do you have to do this particular one in the pros and cons, risks, all that kind of stuff? Um, because it, the reality is it's just going to slow to a crawl at the end. Your energy is going to suck. You're not going to feel good. You know, and it, yeah, I think people are just generally too overly optimistic. And if you, you play the game of, okay, let's say you say you're 16 weeks out and you're actually more like 30 weeks out. What happens if this goes wrong? It's not going to be good. Let's go the other way. And let's say you're 16 weeks out and you feel like you're, you're pretty good to go. Great. That's easy. We can always give you more food and do stuff to extend it. But to try to compress that time window at the end, I mean, there's, you know, drugs aside, there's only even then only so many things you can do to, to try to compress that. It's, it's almost to me the same way of looking at someone doing like a powerlifting meet. They're doing their taper and they're like, okay, I, I, have, I have seven days to do my taper and I want to perform my peak on this day. Most of the time, I just double that. I'm like, let's back up. Let's work with you for at least six months before. And I want to give you two weeks to do your taper. We'll look at measurements of stress, HRV, some other metrics. And most of the time we find out, oh, it was like 10 days. Because historically, they're like, I don't know. I just feel like I missed my peak on that day. Because I'm like, if we give you two weeks, you're ready early. We can easily bridge you for a couple of days and do things so that you can perform better on that day. If it's seven days, there's only so many advanced recovery things you can do. And it's not going to be enough to get rid of that systemic fatigue so you can perform on that day. So all that to say, I'm a bigger fan of having more time, which I know is not always a luxury. And then you can backfill if you just happen to be ready early. Most people aren't. But if you are, great. That's easy to fix. The other way, yeah, not so easy to fix. Yeah, I feel like there's like three types of, like you talked about the psychology and we both agree that a lot of this is mental and your own, sure. having your own grit, having your own focus. And I feel like there's like three types of people. There's the person that is just consistent year round and keeps their body fat low. It's relatively like no big deal for them. They don't have, they have a positive relationship to food and they just like what they do and they're consistent. And when it comes time to dial in for show, they're, they're it's not this horrible journey. And then there's a second type of person who isn't necessarily lean all year round, understands it may take 30 instead of 20 weeks. But it, once, once the like switch is on, it's like that you just threw them the ball and they're going to touch down for 30 weeks. And then there's the third type of person who you give them 20 weeks, but they really don't start dieting till 10. And then they say to you, well, what are we going to do for peak week? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oops. Like it's there's so much psychology. Yeah, oops. And but they're not going to give up on the show. They're not going to push yeah. out the show and do something else. So it's like there's so much psychology to this. And then even what you talked about with the fact that um judges will say that you're you're holding water. And what exactly is holding water anyways? Is that even possible? Yeah, right. Right. And then what people, is that? Are people making bad mistakes? What is water loading? What is water depletion? You got people taking diuretics, getting very sick, you know, people drinking two, three, four gallons of water because they think that's going to help them look better and whatnot. I mean, Mike, I, I'm sure you have tons of horror stories in and around the arena of water in general. Like, is that something you can elaborate on? 
Yeah. So to get back to your first part of your question, people forget that you can't really control where you lose body fat. But at some point, if you get lean enough, you will lose it in those areas you don't lose it in, right? I mean, I've seen a few females I worked with who their abs are pretty shredded, but they had nothing below their waist. That, And that was 20 weeks out, right? And they ended up doing okay. But it took a long time to get to that that point. So I think that's something people tend to forget. Um, there's another guy I know. He he looks shredded from the waist up year round, but his hamstrings look like he's never trained until he gets like just you know really really lean. It, it's weird. Like you see like weird mm-hmm. extremes like that. Um, yeah, in terms of water, it's just sometimes I feel like people just forgot basic physiology. You know, and it's like you. And the tricky part is like, can you try to quote unquote trick your body a little bit? Kind of. And that's what makes it hard because you will find cases of, yeah, I did this crazy thing and it just happened to work. Does that happen? A hundred percent. Is there weird, crazy ass protocols that work sometimes? Yes. I would say, are they repeatable all the time? Rarely. (laughs) And that's the issue Um, because you're literally trying to control the thing that your physiology has to control in order for you to survive, right? Most of what we are is water. Your body is very, very good at fluid regulation. It has to be in order to survive. And so what you're trying to do as a physique athlete is you're trying to control, in theory, what compartments the water goes into. And the physics just don't really work too good in your favor. Now, are there other things you can do to try to hedge your bets in a better direction? Yes. You know, one of the main ones people forget about is just loading carbohydrates with water, right? What is muscle glycogen? Muscle glycogen is literally carbohydrates and molecules of water. So if you're trying to load carbohydrates and your fluid intake is like next to zero, good luck, right? You're going to be like, oh my God, I took in all these hundreds of grams of carbohydrates and I look flat. I don't know what's going on. It's like, well, how much water and sodium did you have? Oh my God, water and sodium. No, I need to deplete those. I'm like, but you forgot like what glycogen literally is like your body can only take so much water from other areas. Um, so that's something you can do to look better and do something related to water. Um, you know, diuretics aside, which is a whole separate issue, which runs into all sorts of safety issues and depleting out other, you know, ions and everything else there. Um, to me, it's like, I don't want to say too simple, but you want to set it up in a system that can also potentially be repeated. And so you want to limit the amount of variables as best you can. Right. So I always tell people like, what are the things that you think are going to move the needle the most? So my biased opinion, that's one being lean enough, which you can only do before the show. Great. You're either there or you're not. The second one is probably the amount of carbohydrates you're going to take in. And I know people have like their own little pet formulas and stuff. And Yes, it is related to muscle mass, but I usually find people probably under-consume carbohydrates. You know, if you're really depleted and you have a fair amount of muscle and you're like, ooh, I'm going to take in 200 grams of carbohydrates, eh, probably not nearly enough, right? And the only way you're probably really going to find that out is, is either by doing a few shows or, you know, 10 weeks earlier, 12 weeks earlier, you know, just playing around with it a little bit. It's like, yes, is that probably going to impede your fat loss a little bit? Yes. That goes back to making sure you're ready and you have enough time. Um, but even just to you know, practice trial run, you're like, hey, let's just take Wednesday as our pretend show day and let's go with X amount of carbohydrates, you know, the night before or however you want to do it. 
let's not restrict water and let's just see how you look the next day. You know, and is that going to be a hundred percent replicable on the day of the show? Probably not. Cause there's going to be stress and some other factors, but I guarantee you're going to be a lot closer than if you didn't do it. <laughs> you know, and most of the time people will find that, Oh man, you know, I thought 300 grams of carbs is going to be enough. It's like, I wasn't even close. Great. Well, that's good data. Now, you know, you, you probably want to air a little bit higher and yes, you can get too crazy and, you know, get too high and, or whatever, but like have some thought of what are the variables I want to play with? What are the ones I probably want to test out beforehand? So I have some idea of a ballpark, especially with someone who's new, hasn't done a show before. And then, you know, try to keep the process the same as best you can each time. I mean, I'll use heart rate variability to look at stress and other markers too, um, just so that you're trying to, because the other thing you hear too is people are like, oh man, I nailed this one show and I'm going to put on, you know, five pounds of mass. I'm going to do my next show two years later. They didn't take any notes. They don't even know what the hell they did. They don't even know how many grams of carbohydrates they had. And they're like, I don't know. I can't hit that peak conditioning ever again. It's like, but if you had some notes to go off, at least you have a starting point. You're always going to be a little bit different, but you have some data to extrapolate on instead of just, you know, hiring Guru Bob and hoping for the best. (laughs) You know, and and it is so helpful having that data in something that I've done competing for 20 years. And I can honestly say throughout the years, having the data just to look back on, you know, if I'm feeling a certain way and you look back at some old notes and it's like, oh, that's kind of normal for this many weeks out. Okay, cool. You forget. People think they're going to remember and you just, you don't. You even won't. the workout Your that you did last that. week, even the workout you did last week, that you're like, oh, I got it, I logged it, I'll know what I did next week, and I'm going to be better. And you just, you're not. You have so many things going on, and you're going to forget. So the logging is something so simple, so basic, but it is so beneficial because how do you even know where to go if you don't know where you are? So yeah. you know, talking about the water, you know, that the concept of water. So we talked about holding water and the misconceptions and it's usually you're just not lean enough. And you talked about carbohydrates and usually it it sounds like most people just get it flipped. They just get it wrong. So the whole idea of loading the carbs and then they pull the water. Yeah. Right. Like, what are you doing? And and that's to (laughs) like to try to not hold water. But what ends up happening when you up the carbs and drop the water? Do you look flat and horrible? (laughs) Right. It looks like you're holding water. I know. Exactly. It looks like the <laughs> inverse paradox you were trying to avoid. Exactly. You know? So that's, that's one stupid thing. It's just that simple concept. And I love it, Mike. I love how you deliver it too. You're so fun. And the next thing we're going to talk about is water loading. Mike, can you share what water loading is and what do people do wrong that is just so basic to you that should be done opposite? Yeah. So, and again, it's, it's difficult because there is some truth to kind of the water loading thing. But again, it all goes back to, I'm trying to trick my body, right? So there's a whole bunch of different protocols, but in general, it's like, I'm going to start drinking more water. And then you see the people carrying two gallons of water at the gym and then three gallons of water. And they, they bring their water intake up to these super high numbers. And then the thought is, I'll just cut it off right before the show and I'll dry out. And there is a, a, a tiny bit of truth to that. Like you do change these, you know, renin, aldosterone, angiotensin system, and all these systems that are intricately designed in the body to regulate fluid. And yes, you can sometimes see a little bit of change in them if you do very abrupt things. But again, going back to how easy is that to replicate? How do you know how you're going to respond to it, especially if you haven't done it before? 
If you're not supplementing with sodium, especially, you can have, you know, literally issues of hyponatremia, which I haven't seen too much in physique sports. Um, but you'd see that in uh, marathon training. There's people would be like, oh, it's super hot, so I'm going to drink more water. And at some point, you can drink so much water that you deplete out sodium. And you can end up with a condition called hyponatremia, which people have literally dried from, especially more endurance uh, events. So there is some danger to it if you're especially if you're not using electrolytes. But again, it's going back to what are you really trying to do, right? If you're lean enough, your carbohydrates are on point, you have enough fluid to fill out your glycogen, you're probably going to need more water, right? It's, it's like the kind of the inverse um, of it. And yeah, if you take in a little bit too much, your body is probably pretty good at getting rid of it. Um, so again, it, I think a lot of my bias is a lot of these... <laughs> I think protocols also came from the use of diuretics, but it was transferred to other competitors and go, oh, whoops, we forgot that part. <laughs> you know, it's like if if you're using different types of diuretics, then, I mean, everything else is out the window because you're using a drug to override the things your body's trying to do, right? So everything then is, is completely different. But if you're not sure. doing that, then I think some of these protocols have kind of come over from that area and, you know, other competitors who are not using diuretics are like, oh, so I need to drink four gallons a day before the show. And it's like, no, just, again, what can you replicate? What can you do? Make sure you have enough fluid to fill out, you know, glycogen stores. And, yeah, you probably don't need to go excessive. Um, but, I mean, there's been a lot better coaches now. If you look, they've actually started posting uh, more for at least natural competitors of, you know, hey, didn't do any, you know, fluid restriction. Drank one gallon of water day of show. Right. They're actually mm -hmm. starting to post some of the stuff that they've been doing. And you look at a lot of their athletes and they look pretty damn good. They're also ridiculously lean four weeks ago. Mm -hmm. If you saw pictures of them, too. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's amazing what what fluid will do to training, too. I mean, I, I'm uh, oh, yeah. if anyone has been listening, Mike knows firsthand. I'm a little bit wild when it comes to trying all these different methodologies. And I've done just about everything from raw food to full keto and everything in between really put my my body and my mental stress on a, a whole nother level trying to understand like does this even work what's this going to do to me is you know is is bob actually right on this one like is there something <laughs> I can, can i learn here but um one of the biggest things i i learned and, and mike was a big proponent of this for me was the simplicity of having the right amount of calories the right amount of fluid and consistency in training and how even 50 grams of more carbs or 100 grams of more carbs can dramatically influence that training uh, in, in such a positive way. When thinking about peak week, though, and you're starting to t talk about manipulating fluids and electrolytes, glycogen, things of that nature, how does that affect training? How does that affect what you're going to do in the gym? What have you seen in that, that front line? Yeah, so they're almost similar, but yet different. Because if you think about it... Um, so if you have a very heavy day in the gym, like you're saying Monday is like your big volume day. In reality, if you're, you know, several weeks out from a competition, I don't really give a rat's ass what you look like after your training session on Monday. If you even look a little bit off, but you tell me your training session was amazing performance wise, I'm like, cool, right? Because you may have consumed more sodium beforehand. You may have had more carbs. You may have had more fluid, whatever. And I'm not that worried about what you look like after or before a training session, right? You know, obviously you take your pictures of whatever you take them, usually first thing in the morning, et cetera. 
Um, and it's probably because you're gonna have a little bit more variability in sodium and fluid and whatever, but I'm grading performance as like the thing that I want to keep my eye on day in and day out. Cause if you're performing better, you're lifting more load, you're doing more volume, you're doing a better density. We know that you're going to add muscle at some point, like you're just going to. Now, when you get to like a peak week, it's almost like the inverse. Like I want to see like the minimal amount of changes, like whatever you know, sodium you're using four, five, three, three days out, like try to keep it the same, you know, fluid, probably the same. It'll change with carbohydrates a little bit, but you're trying to make the minimal changes possible, right? So everyone's probably had this experiment, right? You go out and you all of a sudden have a big dinner and you take in, you know, three, 4,000 milligrams of sodium, uh, a bunch of water. You go to the gym and train. You're like, man, I kind of look like crap, but training went pretty good today right? It's like the inverse of what you would want on a peak week, because you're probably going to have some temporary, you know, fluid exchange, you're, you know, you're going to have those disruptances because you made this radical change. So your body's going to take a little while to sort that back out. And it's like, oh, okay, now we're, we're back down to homeostasis again. So my bias before a peak week, you don't want any of those changes, right? You probably don't want a huge change in fluid, you don't want a huge change in sodium, you don't other than a carb load, which you've already practiced, you don't want to make a lot of other changes. Like you don't want to do anything to kind of disrupt the boat at all. Your stress is already super high and you want to be as consistent as possible and try to make the response predictable because your goal is to be looking aesthetically the best you can. No one gives a rat's ass about how you perform on that day. No one even gives a shit how you feel because it feels horrible most of the time. Um, but you're graded on almost like two different things. So I think a lot of times competitors are too worried about how they look in the off season. They're not monitoring their loads. They're not monitoring how much they're lifting. And then they're trying to do this radical thing like three days out. Oh my God, it's peak week. I read from Bob that I got to do this thing like two and a half days out. And I'm like, like all athletes, like I spend more time talking about a shit like the week before any big competition than anything else. It's like, no, you should not caffeine load on this day. Have you ever done that in training? No, don't do it now. I think my carbohydrates, we should change. We did 500 before. I want to try 800. No, <laughs> just, and I get it. Like you, you reach the point where the deadline's coming and you want to do everything you can to maximize it. But vast majority of the time that backfires, you know, so mm -hmm. it's just like, just don't do it. Let's just ride this in. Everything's looking good. Let's do the minimal amount of changes. Let's stick with the plan and, and you'll, you'll be okay. It's crazy with some of these peak week uh, training protocols are like and how exhausting they are to an already exhausted body. And so that actually what we're talking about here is the third stupid thing yeah. <laughs> that physique competitors still do is all of that crazy training during the week. So you need somebody like a Mike who's going to be pulling your back from yourself, right, to keep you from doing those extra things that are really not going to help you look any better on show day. If anything, they're going to hinder that. So we've talked about the concept of, of holding water. We've talked about water loading. Mike, do you think that you drove that one home about water loading? And Probably then, enough, I think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then this one about training during peak week. And then a fourth thing that I want to talk about is what really happens when you deplete sodium, water, and carbohydrates at the same time. You look like crap. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you think about like, the main thing you can control, right, is how lean you are coming into the week, which the week of you're really not going to do much to change, right? And that's where people try to make up lost time and they 
do all this high volume stuff and they get ridiculously sore and they're, you can vouch for this. Like their posing routine looks horrible because their lats are cramping up and mm. like you're not going to get anything beneficial out of the last week. The last week should be relatively easy training volume. Don't do anything, you know, don't do any heavy eccentrics. Don't do anything new, just a little bit of tension and just go with the week. Um, so I think it's, again, it's similar to that where, just make the minimal amount of changes that you want, I think, and then you'll be be all right. I don't think I answered your question entirely, though. So, well, I think you summarized it, and you're going to look like crap. I think. <laughs> and yeah, because uh, I was trying to say that glycogen professor? is the main thing you can control, right? Mike, so you can control glycogen. Is that, <laughs> is that professor terminology, yes. by the way? Yeah, dog crap. Okay. Yes, it's <laughs> actually a whole form of training, which is funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, glycogen is the main thing you can control, right? In my biased opinion. So, you know, let's see what your fluid is, see what your sodium is, especially electrolytes, see what your carbohydrates are. Try to replicate that or at least have a log of it. You're going to need some sodium, right? You don't want to drive that to zero. You're going to need some fluid because you need that for glycogen. Um, so make sure those are present. Again, don't do any radical changes. Yeah, your carbohydrates are probably going to come up quite a bit, but hopefully you've you know practiced that and you have a good idea. That's it. Like just, you know, the minimal, it's like, if you were to design a system, do you want 81 moving parts or three moving parts? Like if something breaks in 81 moving parts, like it's a pain in the ass to figure out what it is. If you've only got three things, it's much easier to figure out what happened, right? Because I think the thing people forget about is exactly what you were saying is maybe the show didn't go the greatest, but I know what to do for next time. You know, it's like post-show are always like, okay, how did it go? Good, bad. Okay, next time we want to try this, this, and this, right? And then a lot of times I think people are just like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know. We'll try again in a year. Um, so minimal things is easier to refine over time too. And that's a tough sell to get no, people Oh, it's a horrible sell. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> no, and even, you know, even as somebody who I teach posing for all competitors, all divisions, all federations in one of the common themes is how many times people overpose. It's like, you don't need to stand there with your eyeballs popping out of your head. <laughs> you, know, you don't. And everybody wants to make it more than it is. And it's like, you need to make this look effortless. And that's a hard thing for people to do to embody that idea because they want to do more because they want to win. Yeah. So whatever 100%. it's going to take, whatever it's going to take to win and selling that concept of, I, I love the term you have, Mike, Violent consistency cracks yeah. me up, right? You remember that? <laughs> Use it in the gym every day. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough sell to get in these basic concepts. It's amazing how many people don't understand the basic concepts and they're relying on coaches who are just, I don't know, shooting in the dark, just going by vibe maybe just, and we'll talk a little bit about drugs too. And that's kind of the fifth um, stupid thing that physique competitors still do uh, that physiology has shown is incorrect they, is they take drugs well drug no. side effects <laughs> assuming that they're going to be the same for everybody yeah yeah Results and, and side effects are going to be the same yeah and there's not a ton of data on this but even anecdotal and some of the data we have we know that in response to any drug it's variable right so take caffeine Right. We have fast metabolizer, fast metabolizers of caffeine. You have slow metabolizers of caffeine. And it's actually a spectrum. Right. There's some poor bastards who can have one cup of coffee at noon and can't sleep for like two days. You know, they're really, really extreme. Um, <laughs> that's not normal. 
But if you expand that to any form of pharmacology, you're just going to have people who respond well, meaning they don't need a lot of stuff and they get a very positive response and maybe very low side effects. You have other people who may still respond, but their side effects may be higher. And then you've probably got, you know, some freaks who just don't have much of any side effects with crazy shit, you know, and no one really understands why that is. Again, assuming you're getting legitimate stuff, everything else is the same as best you can. Um, But, you know, some of the people are probably either hyper responders or people that just don't see as many of the acute side effects, right? There's also potential, you know, cardiac structural changes and a whole bunch of other things going on too. Um, But I think the assumption is, oh, if I just knew what pro whatever did on their drug cycle, then I would just do that and I would be similar. It's like, no, you probably wouldn't, right? You look at, you know, some of the people who were professionals early on in their life. Like I've never seen a picture of Lee Priest when he was 18. It's like, what the hell? You know, Ronnie Coleman, when he competed, you know, his first show he said was natural, like insane. You know, Kai Green competed natural for many, many years. I mean, all of them were, were freaks well before they did any other form of enhancement. You know, and I think that's the thing that people tend to forget. And it's not taking away any of their work ethic or anything like that at all. But yeah, I think being realistic about what do you want to do? What are your expectations? What risks do you want to do? And trying to be as educated about it as you can from like actual legitimate information. And even then just start slow, do blood work, like do blood pressure, do basic stuff, you know, because it's not a completely linear response either, right? You could be doing whatever. It could be good, good, good. And all of a sudden you hit that part of the curve and stuff can get really crazy. Well, you know, it's interesting. Do you remember that conversation that we had um, in Florida? There was an IFBB pro bodybuilder, Olympian. We had a conversation mm. about, um, you mentioned super responder and that kind of pinged my thoughts because you've you've talked about that where it didn't really make, is it even a real thing where, okay, so somebody who maybe doesn't need a lot of a certain drug and you mentioned that our dosages are different and people's responses are different. And, but there's like this talk um, going around and again, it's word of mouth, so I don't know if it's true, that you can be a super responder to drugs and anabolic drugs so that somebody who is genetically great could not be a super responder, takes some drugs and kind of gets a meh response. Somebody whose genetics are blah, you know, Bob, Bob on the couch, came off the couch and he decided to do a show. And all of a sudden, Bob is like on the Olympia stage because he was like a super responder. He like exponentially improved with that extra layer with the drugs. Is that something? Probably would be my guess. I mean, there's obviously going to be very little literature on that. I mean, just the amount of literature on even testosterone and training, you know, Bazin's done a lot of that stuff back in the nineties. There just isn't that much. But if we look at training studies without drugs in terms of are there responders to just lifting? Yeah. There's what they call extreme responders, which no one's entirely sure why that is. Uh, the first time I saw that was a study that uh, Dr. Stu Phillips did, presented at ACSM, oh God, back in the 2006, 2008. I don't know, maybe it was later than that. And he's presenting the graph and he put up a scatter plot of all the data. They had these people do a 12-week, I think, program training for hypertrophy, measured hypertrophy. And he shows the graph, which generally was going up over time. If you look at increases in lean body mass. <laughs> 
And there was two people like way the hell above everybody else. And there was also one poor bastard that got weaker and smaller <laughs> during the study, <laughs> which I, to me was like fascinating. It's like, what happened to that poor dude? And who the hell are these other two people? You know, so yeah. I asked him, I said, who are these two people up at the top? Because, you know, once in a while you get one, but it was weird that you get two. And he called them the, the beef brothers because they grew up on a farm. They ate, I don't know how many pounds of beef, you know, per day. And nutrition wasn't controlled in the study. And he's like, yeah, they just did really good with weight training. Mm. So they did a series of other studies looking at, you know, testosterone levels, testosterone response to exercise, GH response to exercise. And, you know, none of those really panned out as being predictive. Um, there's some stuff on, you know, maybe myonuclear domain and some other theories, but no one's 100% sure why. Um, but it does seem to happen, you know, and then if you like stories of a buddy of mine who used to lift with a lot of <clears throat> professionals up in Canada. One, I won't mention his name, but one guy in particular, he said, huge arm, you know, IFBP competitor for many years. He's like, yeah, he would come in and do press downs with like 50 pounds for like half reps for a little while. He's like, the guy didn't really train that much at all. And he looked crazy and he always looked crazy, you know? So you hear stories of that from people who actually legitimately like trained in the gyms, you know, with them. And then you see videos of, you know, Ronnie Coleman doing insane stuff and lifting, you know, presses with 200 pound dumbbells in each hand. And so you just see a huge variety in methods. And so, yeah, I would guess that there probably is some difference there, but depending down what exactly that is and what are the interactions, who knows? Again, that's all compounded by what somebody said and you know what they took and what is it whether they got is even legit and mm. you look at the placebo effect with some of the steroids studies it's crazy oh really like two or three studies done with uh placebo and one of them i think they did um can't remember how many weeks but basically they told both groups like hey we gave you you know steroids and i don't remember the what group how much they got the other group literally got nothing i don't remember if it was a saline injection or if it was a pill they literally got nothing and what they saw was like their results at least for a short term were pretty crazy like some of the people added like 30 40 pounds of some of their lifts over 8 12 weeks it was pretty nuts um so that further compounds everything in terms of you know what you know if Belief. you think you're on and you think that it's the next thing that's going to be the greatest ever there's probably a pretty big placebo effect involved on top of everything else too. That's crazy. And that belief and that mindset that we talked about is just such a huge component of all of this. And uh, couple that with just basic physiology and and the ideas that you talked about today and and how the misconceptions with even just something you're, you're saying pretty much carbohydrate loading is like the simplest thing that you can do. And it's the one thing that is messed up the most. Right. It seems to be, I, I yeah. you know, and again, it's always hard because it's anecdotal and, you know, a lot of people don't want to tell you exactly what they did and everyone wants to have their own little secret protocol. And it did, yeah, so it's hard to try to figure out exactly, you know, what's going on. But, you know, if you're around long enough, you know, coaches you trust, like, you know, they're probably going to tell you legit, like they don't have any reason you know, not to tell me what they're actually doing. And you also mm -hmm. find, like, I'm sure you guys have found too, like the amount of variability from one person to the next is pretty huge. 
Like, cause I would have always thought, well, if I just knew exactly how much lean body mass somebody had, I should be able to, you know, hundred percent titrate the amount of carbohydrates they need, even off season during peak week. I don't know. There's a range for sure. Like the bigger you are, you probably need more, but it's definitely even my experience, not linear. <laughs> it's pretty variable from one to the next. So even with all that science, there's still so much customization with this. Right. Yeah, because like my little favorite saying is that I probably sold this from my buddy Sean Casey is that research will generally give you the direction, but me search will give you the answer. Right. Because most people, if you're hiring a coach, they don't give like the people that hire me, they don't give two shits about how many studies I've read. They could care less. It's like if they wanted the physiology, it's like go buy a used textbook for four dollars. Right. But that doesn't necessarily apply to them. It's good to know. Right? You need to know the principles. You need to know how stuff works. <clears throat> but then can you take those and figure out a way to individualize it for the person sitting in front of you and what they're actually going through and make it useful to them? Right. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I see your stress is real high. Okay, we're going to try to do this or do that. Or maybe you're losing weight you know, too fast. Or with women, I've lost track of how many times I've done this where I give them more carbohydrates overnight and their scale weight goes down the next morning. They're like, oh my God, what happened? You know, it's like, well, if you're super stressed and cortisol gets crazy and your HRV is all wacky, yeah, you can, you know, in theory, hold more water then or, you know, certain times of the month if you don't know that's coming up, right? So all those things play in to figuring out what is the best thing for that individual. And then to me, it's like, I stole this from my buddy Cal Dietz. It's, you're just running little biological experiments to see what happens. It sounds horrible and clients don't want to hear that, you know, but it's like, hey, if I did this and it worked, great. Let's just keep doing that. I'm going to keep doing that as long as it keeps working. If that didn't work, then I know I probably need to go this direction and let's go here. So thinking ahead of time to set it up where, yep, I think this is right. But in my head, I know if that's not right, then I know this is going to be better instead of just, you know, some people I think are literally just shotgunning stuff, which whatever was the most popular program. And then if that doesn't work, they're like, we'll just try harder. It's like, they didn't try hard enough. It's like, really? Mm. Yeah. With some people that may be the answer, but with like most people who are very competitive, like I spend most of my time, like pulling them back to try to stop them for doing more stuff, you know, cause they're the other way. They're like, usually do a little bit too much and you're trying to like, you know, kind of pull them back a little bit. Yeah, I mean that that psychology once again with all of that and in the simplicity of some things and you know one thing that even uh, salt for example simplicity something so so basic just not during peak week I'm just talking in general what a difference with workouts 100% And that came from you yeah. the you have this um element T it's this salt there's a it's salt what are the three ingredients in that Salt potassium magnesium And it was so basic yeah. and it was and I actually stopped taking a pre workout just to have salt because I found yeah. that I would really, I would sip on the salt yeah. during, you know, as I'm on my way to the gym. And when I got to the gym, it's like, I just felt a lot different. And I, and I think salt is something that's not really tracked as, as much. I know I didn't track it as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should have tracked it a lot more. I kind of eyeballed it, but now I'm paying attention a lot more because I actually saw it give me a better performance in the gym, like drastically better. And it was a high dose too. It wasn't just like, you know, a little sprinkle here. Right. Yeah, I mean, the Element T, the company is by uh, Rob Wolf and some other guys. Uh, Buddy Lewis is there too, Tyler. And it's basically super high sodium. So it's about 1,000 milligrams of sodium, not salt, not sodium chloride, sodium. And like you said, magnesium and some potassium. 
The first time I talked to Rob about it, it was probably five years ago. I think it was at PaleoFX. It's like, yeah, I have this new company. Here's what we're doing. And I'm like, really, man? I'm like, no offense, but I think that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. Like, you're, what are you doing? You know, like it didn't make sense to me. And he's like, no, man, like people are not consuming enough sodium. And I'm like, really? I'm like, okay, he's a pretty smart dude. Maybe I should check into this. And so I went in chronometer and I started looking at sodium intake in athletes. And I realized I'm like, oh, crap. Like I was so used to general population, which probably have too high of a sodium. But when I ran the analysis on some athletes, I was like, holy shit, they're like, you know, two, you know, two grams a day. And I'm like, that seems kind of low. And I always kind of accounted for it with heat environments, but I never accounted for the baseline level of where they were at. So I'm like, I don't know, I'll try this myself. So I would, you know, for several weeks, I'd add, you know, like another gram per week. And same thing as you, I was like, oh, like my training in the gym feels better, but it was much more consistent. You know, Mm -hmm. like at the time, like every fourth or fifth workout would just be dog shit. I'm like, ah, you know, it's just probably a bad day. But I could never figure out what it was. HRV wasn't off, like nothing else was off. And once I had more sodium, like those days became a lot less. And so then I started doing it more with other clients. And yeah, like performance generally got a lot better. You know, for physique athletes, they're like, I don't know. I just never get a pump in the gym. I'm like, more carbohydrates and salt. Like that's mm. definitely where I would start, you know, to begin with. They're like, oh, that was that works so much better. That's crazy. You know, and I remember mm. calling Rob back. I'm like, yeah, you were right. I I was wrong. Like, this is so much better. And I just feel like a schmuck because I never thought of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you noticed too. The salt and our from uh, Vasilios to myself, our numbers of salt are different. Mm. And you found like you tested, you tested going all the way up to eight grams, right? And and in fact, I've tested the opposite too. I pulled sodium down almost to completely nothing uh, and had an extremely bad experience. My carb load was under a hundred grams. So I had, you know, no retention of proper minerals, potentially, obviously I'm guessing here, but, um, and my sodium levels were under 500 milligrams. So uh, oh, Jesus. I was, and I was drinking a lot of water, as you, as you had mentioned before. Yeah, which I'm I don't worse. Know, yeah, right. And and I didn't know that. So uh, I had a bad experience where I actually had heart palpitations, mm-hmm. where my heart about 25% into my workout, my heart rate jumped to about 160, 165, which, which is not too bad for a heavy, you know, giant set or something. But I usually, I'm only there for 20 seconds or 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And then you're, you're going back down 130, 120. I had stuck there, 160, 165, could not shake it. Uh, two, three minutes came in. I had to sit down. 20 minutes later, I'm on a toilet throwing up, you know, oh. temperatures through the roof. I'm sweating, couldn't figure it out, uh, watching my heart rate the whole time. And it, in, after going through everything, I go, I go, you know what? I have no sodium. I have no carbs. My water was too high. Like my, my body didn't know how to handle the stress. Did I give you an LMNT? Uh, at, when we got home that day, I did uh, increase oh my, my sodium tremendously. Oh my god! This sounds like placement right now. Yeah. Can I just, like, put a <laughs> no. I'll send this oh one to god. Rob. No, no. <laughs> this uh, to- I swear to God, guys, this totally is not. I do shots of Redmond. Anyone who's broke out <laughs> yeah. there, you know. <laughs> we like the Marriott Hotel. <laughs> yes, <the> sodium, <laughs> on our yeah. podcast tour. sodium is free. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Dan Efferding has talked a lot about that with sodium for athletes too. You know, so he's used that with I don't know how many athletes for physique and powerlifters and he's like yeah it makes a huge difference you know because it's it's to me it was like oh i just never even thought of looking at it i just assumed mm-hmm. it was fine and when we go 
to like Costa Rica and other places where it was hot, the running joke was I was like the salt pusher there because I realized if I didn't dramatically increase my sodium, cause I'm sweating like 24 seven all the time there that it just didn't go well. And so people would come down there and they wouldn't be like, Oh no, it's fine. And like, especially some of the women like day two, it's like my ankles are all puffy and I'm retaining all this water. I'm like, yeah, you don't have enough sodium. They're like, what? That's going to make it worse. I'm like, no, trust me. Like it'll be, it'll be better. And like two days later, like, Oh my God, it all went down. I feel so much better now. Yeah. Right? Cause your, your yeah. body has to maintain that balance of fluid and sodium. And if one gets a little bit too out of whack from the other, it's going to have all these processes that are going to try to push it back to, you know, homeostasis no matter what. Um, and that, that's something that I've underestimated the amount too. They just, how much you, you know, you think you're paying attention, you're salting your foods and, and things like that, but the training and the intensity of the training and things like that and hot weather versus cold weather, but just in general, um, adding that additional made such a difference. It was like, wow, I really am that low. Mm. And you went up to eight, but you kind of found the happy medium. Yeah, five. Six, six to eight grams is about my kind of like living sodium intake. Yeah. especially when I'm, when I'm full training mm. and, and going five, six days a week to the gym. What do you do, Mike? How much salt do you yeah, take? That's, that's about where mine is. I've gone everywhere from real low to real high. Uh, side note, if you go really high too fast, you'll be in the bathroom. That's not good for training. You're, you'll have some gut issues because yes. the osmolality will not be in your favor. <laughs> We've done that. Not so fun. Osmolality. Um, what a word. Osmolality. Yeah. So mine's usually like five to seven, you know, like if I'm going into like my two heavier days are Monday and Saturday, like I'll probably be closer to seven or eight and other days, you know, around five. And I find that that tends to work pretty good. Um, that's not in a super hot environment. You know, if it's hot, it'll be probably even higher than that. It, you know, scary enough, it does get pretty hot in Minnesota in the summer. You know, it's not just penguins here all year round. But, um, yeah, so it, it's variable. And the last part, too, is that you talked about weight, uh, fluid loss uh, with training. So super simple tip that I didn't do with some people until this probably a couple of years ago is just get on a scale before you train you know, buck naked if you can, or just in a pair of shorts, whatever, go train, come back in, get back on the scale. And some people are shocked at like how much they've lost. Mm -hmm. Right. I think a lot of times I did that with some athletes where I thought they're probably losing too much just for awareness. You know, I had like a couple smaller female athletes that lost like three pounds over an hour and a half. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's significant. Especially if I saw their performance towards the end of their training, just always tailing off and it correlated mm. with temperature. And then you realize they're losing sometimes two, three pounds. You're like, yep. Um, but again, that was an awareness Joe. was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I should probably even up it a little bit more than what I was. You know, Mike, I just got a call from Bob from the couch. <laughs> oh, nice. Bob from the couch just told me that he needs to ask you because he has heard that when you consume too much salt, um, it's going to make you just your cholesterol through the roof. Okay. <laughs> Didn't he say something about hypertension too? Mm, all that. So Mike, <laughs> yeah. what do you have to, what do you have to say to Bob? This is like the whole discussion on salt now, which I guess I just realized is like controversial, <laughs> which I didn't know. Um, so historically, if, <clears throat> so if you look at sodium, like, so part of it where I think it went awry is, if you have like a severe pathology, like when I worked at the medical device company, we had people who had implanted devices of ours who had heart failure. 
right? So instead of your heart being this nice squeezing motion to get blood out, it literally looks like this hula hoop thing where it's just pushing blood more left and right. Some of the people, their hearts were like the size of soccer balls, basketballs, because the heart gets enlarged because of its inefficiency. And in those people, like they would have a bag of potato chips and they would, their weight would skyrocket by like pounds. And it would get to be so bad that the fluid would start, you know, backing up in their lungs and would cause like real severe issues. Um, but they have incredibly compromised fluid, right? Their heart is not pumping. So they're literally not getting blood and fluid and everything around their body. Their kidneys are not being perfused. So their body is just doing everything it can to try to, you know, kind of hold on. So in those kind of populations, yeah, like acute changes in sodium make a huge difference. Do most of the people need to be on a low sodium diet? Absolutely. And if you look at high blood pressure, then the theory was, oh, well, because if we increase salt, that's going to increase fluid and that's going to increase something called mean systemic filling pressure. You're just going to have more fluid and more force on the system. And if your heart's already working hard, that's going to be more work that your heart is going to do. Your blood pressure is going to be higher. What they found was some people were sensitive to sodium and some people were not. So some people, which was a minority, yes, the sodium levels did make a difference with their hypertension. So some of those people probably did do better on a low sodium, a DASH type diet, but that wasn't everybody. So I think the assumption got made that, oh, if you have hypertension, then you must be on a low sodium diet. And then the assumption got made, well, if you don't even have hypertension, let's say you're you're just healthy. Well, sodium's bad, right? Because it's it's associated with some of these other pathologies, which it is. But is it causative? Probably not. Um, and what you find is most people who are healthy, your body does a pretty good job. And now sometimes it may take a couple of days if you do, you know, violent swings one direction or the other, does a pretty good job of, of trying to even it out and get back to homeostasis. Um, but people who are training, again, most people, even in an air-conditioned environment, they're losing fluid over that. They're probably moving more. And then if you look at their diet analysis, most of the time they're eating more real food. So their sodium intake at baseline is normally much, much lower than general population. And I think that's where it gets confusing. So if someone came to me and said, you know, Bob, whose butt looks like a couch cushion and he has cheese doodle dust on his hands, should he be <laughs> using more sodium? I'm like, no, that's probably a horrible idea, right? It's probably not going to benefit his performance. If anything, it might be detrimental. We don't know his background. But if someone like you guys are training heavy, you're training four, five, six days a week, you're eating mostly real food, like your baseline level of sodium is generally going to be lower. And in that population, most of the time their performance is better. And even then, if they're still worried, which I stole this from my buddy Luke Lehman from Muscle Nerds, just get an Omron um, blood pressure device. Just measure your blood pressure each morning for a week. And then maybe you just take a few days out of each month and measure it again and make sure that it's good. In my biased opinion, again, I'm not an MD. If your blood pressure is good, all your other health markers are good, your performance is up. Out of all the things I'm going to be worried about, I personally don't get too worried about that. But again, how long did it take us to go through the conversation of is salt good or bad, right? And it's it's a context thing and people want the mm -hmm. answer of, oh, it's amazing or it's horrible. It's like, well, who are you talking about? What's their background? What are they trying to do? What are their risk factors? Mm. You know, all that kind of stuff. And that, you know, context just generally gets lost on the internet. It's a lot harder to sell, right? You got yeah, so it's easier just to say, take this and feel amazing. Oh, right. okay, sure. Yeah. Or the pre-workouts with 80 ingredients in them. Yeah, right.
Yeah, it's right? a proprietary blend. Who knows what's age. in there? <laughs> Don't know. Don't know. Yeek. And all the listeners out there, have you? I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I can listen to him all day. He makes me laugh. I don't know about you guys, but the and when you started to get all geeky just a minute ago, I don't. You'll see people who are watching this on YouTube. You're going to see Mike actually lean into the camera, and he gets all like yeah. professor for a second. <laughs> That's cool but stuff. You get all you get all professor, but you then give these visuals of like you know your heart the size of a basketball, and you talk about Hulu. You just talk about things that, that you so you frame it in a way where somebody who's a layman, where I don't have that geeky background that you do, but you explain it so I understand it. And I want to drive yeah, that home about because yeah, DCM dilated cardiac myopathy. People are like, what the hell? I don't even know what he said. Oh, mm-hmm. it looks like a basketball. Got it. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so that's why we wanted to have Dr. Mike come on here to explain some things about, specifically with physiology and explain it in a way that was super fun. And I hope everybody enjoyed the podcast. And if you do want to follow Dr. Mike T. Nelson, you can find him on. Well, Dr. Mike, I'll let you share where you can find where they can find you. Yeah, so probably the best place is the website, which is if people still use such things. It's MikeTNelson.com. And you can go on there and get on to the newsletter. Got a bunch of free giveaways from should you do keto? Do you want to create a cold water immersion to I think there's one on the flex diet, a bunch of other ones. Just go to MikeTNelson.com, scroll down, you'll see them there. And then, yeah, once you're on the newsletter, uh, send me a quick note. Tell me you heard me here so I can say hi to you. And then probably social media, the best place is probably Instagram, which is just under Dr. Mike T. Nelson. So D-R-M-I-K-E-T-N-E-L-S-O-N. And I'll be there on Instagram and still trying to post some stuff. I do pretty good for a few weeks at a time and I might drop off for a week, but I'll be back. (laughs) And all of this will also be in the show description too. And the Flex Diet Certification, Dr. Mike, is also where if you're looking to gain all of that knowledge about the interventions that can be done for your clients or even yourself on the things that you can do to improve metabolic flexibility. Um, Dr. Mike, you can tell them where they can find more information, but I just want to mention to the, uh, the viewers, the listeners that you're going to learn in a way that you're going to be super geeky, but it's also going to be super fun too, because Mike is just such a great teacher and really fun. So Mike, please tell them where to find information about your flex diet certification. Yes. Thank you. Uh, best place is just the general website, which is flexdiet.com. F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And if they like podcasts, they can listen to the Flex Diet podcast, which is kind of a wide range of everything from, you know, generally people want to add more muscle performance, better body comp, all without destroying their health. So they can check that out also. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Mike. Cool. And we will tune in next. I hope to have you on the show once and we'll talk about some other fun stuff at some point. But thanks again for coming on today. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It was good to see you. Thank you for having me on here. I really appreciate it. It was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ever wonder if you are posing correctly for your division? Learn to Pose is dedicated to taking out the guesswork on how to pose for all categories in bodybuilding. Learn five ways you can improve your posing skills in five minutes guaranteed at www.learntopose.com. There are free posing tutorials available for the bikini, figure, and men's physique categories and more on the way for other divisions in bodybuilding. It's free, so go access your free posing tutorial for bikini, figure, or men's physique at learntopose.com.